listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Uh, if you would, open your Bible to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. And that's really where we're going to camp today. I was going to uh, maybe dabble in the book of Luke as well, chapter 2. But what I think I'm going to do instead is just read a portion from Luke chapter 2, and then I want to spend all of our time in Isaiah uh, chapter 9. So if you wouldn't mind, just kind of keep a thumb or finger on Isaiah chapter 9. And then also, if you would... Just kind of flip over to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read this passage, I'm going to pray, and then I think we're going to see the bigger picture of this as it goes back to Isaiah chapter 9. So let me read Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And in the same region there there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Father, we thank you for this story. Not just a story, but reality. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, that when you came You not only died for our sins and our place, but with You, You brought peace. And Father, we need peace, an understanding of peace, a living out of peace. Now it seems more than ever. And so would You help us understand what it is that peace really is according to the Bible, according to Your Word, and how it connects in with this good news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So Father, make much of Your Word. May we make much of You, glorify You this morning. 
And may we also be encouraged and edified, emboldened, and really spurned on to obedience as we leave this place this morning. And so we ask for your help. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so last week, as you may remember, we, we hit on the topic of hope in Christmas. Right? Hope. And this week, it's peace. And I was just thinking, because Elizabeth Anderson made this, so I was like, kids, if you can replicate that on your piece of paper, that'll keep you busy the entire sermon. But let's just see how awesome you are if you can write the word peace really big in the middle and then create that thing around it. <clears throat> but peace is the focus for today. And peace is, a, this is, a, this is kind of a difficult, at least for me, it was kind of a difficult term to really kind of nail down definition. And of course, context always brings out definition. But peace has just kind of a wide range of meaning. In Scripture, we see it having the idea of tranquility, safety, wholeness, prosperity, health. There's this big encompassing picture of peace or shalom as we would see in the Scriptures. And we see peace, it's just completely littered throughout the entirety of Scripture from beginning to end. You see this call to quiet living and submission and obedience. There's this peace that comes between man and God because there's a disruptive, uh, disrupted relationship. You see peace comes in order to bring relationship back to one another. There's peace among the nations. There is peace when the people are showing themselves as one. There's peace when the temple is built and the city walls are re-erected and built and made whole again. There's peace, as the psalmist talks about, as we sleep. There is peace when war ceases. So there's all these different contexts in the Bible of which peace is used. And so... <clears throat> Kind of begs the question, what is peace going to be today in this passage? And if we think about peace just really in our society, in our world, you know, peace according to world standards is at best just an imitation peace. Kind of like imitation crab. Kind of tastes like seafood? Eh, not really. But it's imitation peace. The world comes up with gimmicks, tricks, practices, mantras, be the best version of you kind of things, to tune out the noise of the world and find that inner peace. Right? So you have that kind of inward peace, but then you also have this external peace that the world talks about. A world with no more war, no more fighting, no more terror, no more religion. And most of that external peace comes about by the avenues of politics or social movements and activism and we hope that those who are in position of power and authority would exercise their authority in such a way that it would bring about that sort of peace. But there's a problem with the world's definition of peace. is that it can be quickly sabotaged with things like money, sex, power, fame. That desire for peace can be quickly 
overturn. Just bribe somebody with a little bit of money and then they will overpower someone else for a selfish gain. And so the world really doesn't have peace. The world thinks they have peace, but no matter how hard the world tries, throughout time, throughout generations, there's an ebb and flow of what peace is supposed to look like. And then there's always something that happens in life that completely disrupts it, that completely makes it not peaceful. The peace that Jesus brings is true peace. It's a peace that is under His dominion, under His rule, a peace that is actively given to make us safe before a holy and unsafe God. A peace that militantly destroys hostility between people and makes them one. It's a peace that continually works until the whole of God's will is accomplished. Not part of it, not some of it, but all of it. It is a peace peace that quiets the soul when the nations are raging and plotting in vain. It's a peace that assures the saints that they are increasingly moving towards their eternal home and destination. This is a peace unlike the world, unparalleled, if you will. A peace that transcends the, the, the time of history and all the events that come therein. This peace is peace that is on the rise. Peace that is on the rise. If you think about peace when we think of Christmas, it's it's usually the silent night kind of idea, right? It's a great song, but often with that kind of comes that picture of a very calm, somber, lightly falling snow outside. Just very quiet and nice this beautiful scene in the manger in Bethlehem. It's very much this tranquil state of mind and soul. And it's not bad, but that's kind of where we land with it. That's not the whole picture. Isaiah helps deepen and enrich the understanding of peace in Christmas. And this picture of peace in Isaiah comes about in a time of not tranquility, but great distress. Great distress. Darkness, and even as he says, deep darkness and gloom. This isn't the the beautiful picture of Christmas that we like to think that it is. But it's my hope that in the context of these passages that we are so often familiar with, especially during this time of the year, that we can begin to see and unpack the reality of what Christmas is, if you will, and what the peace is that God brings to us through His Son. So as we work into Isaiah chapter 9, let me build a little bit of context. And this was not an easy project. I just want to go ahead and mention up front, I feel like I am decades behind and understanding Isaiah even more. And I think we often feel that way once we start to grasp hold of some Scripture and some context even more. We're like, man, I have so much more to learn. And I feel like this is how the Lord was working me over in these chapters. And I definitely have a hunger and a desire to continue to grow. But if you were to go back to Isaiah chapter 7... Isaiah was living in the time of kind of around the the tail end of the kings, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. 
And so Israel and Judah had not yet been taken into captivity, but it was on the horizon. And in fact, part of it started to take place to the north. King Ahaz was ruling to the north. He was not a good king. He did what was evil in the sight of God. And then eventually you had King Hezekiah to the south who was a good king. Or excuse me, King Ahaz was king of Judah, pardon me. And he was not a good king. He was an evil king in the sight of God. But then after him would come Hezekiah. But during the time of King Ahaz, up to the north, you had the brothers of Judah, right? If you remember, Israel was one kingdom, one nation, one nation under God with one king. And then after Solomon, this kingdom was divided. It was really one God in one location, but two separate kings and kingdoms, if you will. And so now you have the people who came out of Egypt who were supposed to be brothers, supposed to be family, now divided, and divided to the point where the north wants to come down and destroy the south. King Ahaz is freaking out. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know if he should turn to the Lord or not. So what he does is he conspires with a nation outside of Israel. He conspires with Assyria and says, hey, you guys got my back. Can you go and destroy Israel to the north before they come down and destroy us. And so this happens. But God works through the prophet Isaiah speaking to Ahaz, saying this, Do not be afraid of Israel and do not be afraid of Assyria. God tells him that he will allow Assyria to overtake his brothers to the north and Israel But he shows that he is ultimately going to stay true to the promises of his word. And as a sign to King Ahaz that he is going to not allow uh, the north to come down and take over Judah, here's the sign. Isaiah 7.14 Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That virgin, also meaning a young woman, This prophecy was fulfilled in the time of Isaiah. You have an immediate and then you have a future fulfillment of that prophecy. God says, here's the sign to show you that I'm not going to allow you, King Ahaz and Judah, to be overtaken in this time to the Assyrians. And so then what we see as we jump into chapter 8, this prophecy immediately fulfilled as a son is born in chapter 8, verse 3, showing that God would not allow Assyria to come down and take over Judah. But there's something interesting in chapter 8 as well. Not only is Judah protected and God keeping to His Word here, and not only does Assyria act as God's instrument and servant to take over Israel, God is also against Assyria, and He's also against Judah for a time. In that 8th chapter, God is looking at Judah and King Ahaz saying, I am God with you, and you haven't been pursuing me. You haven't been turning to me. You've been turning to the nations for help. You've been turning to foreign gods in foreign ways and not turning to me. After you die, King Ahaz, Judah is going to be captured. And to you, Assyria who think that because you are taking some of my people out, you must 
misunderstand and not remember that I am God with them. Don't think that you can just easily and quickly and flippantly come in and take my people and not have to deal with it. God with us becomes an indictment to both Judah and to a pagan nation, Assyria. And that's what we see in chapter 8. And then as we flip into chapter 9, this is where the hope of the Lord begins to dawn on the people. Israel to the north is captured by the Assyrians and is taken into exile. Judah and Jerusalem to the south are still hanging on. Hanging on by a thread. But there's this time that the Assyrians take out the north. And they are taking their people out. They are passing through the land, the northern land of Israel, the land of Galilee, if you will, taking them into the far reaches of the world. And then we see that God says, hey Judah, just as a river would fill up and rise and spill over, so this captivity that's happening to the north is going to spill over into the south as well. Don't think you're getting off the hook just because you see your brothers being taken away by the Assyrians. At some point soon, Assyria will come down, and then the Babylonians will come down, and the nation of Israel, this promised land, this place that my people have dwelled in, that I promised to them in the time of Abraham, will be completely done away with. Will be completely gone. And so Christmas is really this cosmic collision between a raging people and the kingdom of God and the Prince of Peace. When we see Christmas and the story of Christmas, it's not as though Jesus is coming to a place where everybody's just super excited to have Him and ready to have Him and are already peaceful and are already just living the good life. Jesus enters into a world just like this child in Isaiah chapter 8 entered into a world that was complete chaos, complete mess, and people who were taken away into captivity and exile. It's not a pretty scene, a pretty picture of which the Son of Man comes down. But that's where the hope comes in. Isaiah 9, I'm going to read the first five verses, then I'm going to really hone in on 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So the Israelites to the north, they were in deep darkness, gloom, despair. Could you imagine walking out of your homeland, looking back at this place that God had given you, knowing it's decimated, it's done for. Some of your family, some of your friends have been killed. This place of which you're walking out of becomes a place of gloom, becomes a place of anguish. And here God has the nerve to say, there will be no gloom or anguish. And one more thing to note, Isaiah is prophesying about future events in past language. He's, he's prophesying about a future event in past language. We have some immediate fulfillment of these prophecies, but here specifically in Isaiah 9, 1-7, there is a strong messianic fulfillment, a future fulfillment that would happen ultimately through Christ. What Isaiah is doing is, he's speaking in the already but not yet language. In the grand scheme of eternity, these things are already done. 
This is 700 years before the coming of Christ. Isaiah is prophesying this. There will be no gloom of her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Guys, we've been working through this in the Gospel of John. We've already seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. The land of Naphtali, the land of Zebulon, this northern region of Galilee. Galilee meaning circle. It's encircling the lake, the Sea of Galilee, if you will. This region to the north that was taken over by the Assyrians and really just flooded in with pagan idolatry and worship now is redeemed. Through Christ, when Jesus comes back, He's taking the same trail that the Israelites did. He's walking back in, and instead of it being gloom and darkness, now comes light. And we've seen this in the Gospel of John already. When Jesus goes to the north, He goes to the Samaritans, He goes to the region of Galilee, and upon them a great light has shone. This is the light that Isaiah is ultimately talking about verse 2 the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone you begin to see the increasingness of joy the increasing nature of peace that this is a much better picture than the current situation of judah and the current situation of israel in this time Jesus comes as the great light. This land that was just flooded in darkness, a place you couldn't see, they're steeped in gloom. Jesus comes and floods it with His glorious light. Making it a better land than it once was. And so the light of the world comes in, shines into the deep, dark recesses of the soul, giving her reason to rejoice. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You understand the offensive nature of that verse? These are words that are being written to exiles on their way out of a land, being captured. Hey, don't worry, guys. Your joy is increasing right now. Like that doesn't make sense, right? But I think that's the greater and grander picture. Israel's gone, man, I wish we had once we what had, one, one time had, right? I miss the good old days, let me put it that way. I miss the house that we had. It's kind of like Israel going, man, I wish we were back in Egypt. But this is a picture of, man, I wish we could go back to this land of promise. Eventually this temple, this Jerusalem, this place where God dwells with us, and God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, that is of the past, and that pales in comparison to the light and the joy that is coming. And he has the audacity to say it while they are in the midst of oppression, suffering, slavery. For the yoke of his burden, verse 4, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The teaching, the burden of the oppressor, of the foreign nations, of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians, of the Persians ultimately, all of those strongholds, all of that strong burden, that heavy burden will be completely done away with, will be completely fractured, broken, destroyed by the Prince of Peace who is to come. And He's going to do it in a way that reminds us of the story of Gideon and the 300. As in the day of Midian. That is, God is going to do all the hard work. He is going to do the fighting. We're just a bunch of has-beens who are just lapping up water like dogs. We don't really know what we're doing. You wouldn't put us on the front line of battle. right? You might put us in the kitchen to make food for the actual warriors, but we're kind of like Gideon and his army of 300. We don't have any dog in the fight. We don't have any chance. It is God who has to come and defeat this enemy. And this enemy is not a foreign nation. This enemy is not an oppressive government. This enemy is sin and death and Satan. And so Jesus comes on His own, if you will, in the power of God fighting for us. And so what is great about everything that we've just seen so far in this context is that it is the action and the work of Jesus on our behalf. And all of these actions in the first one th- verses 1-5 through five are actions that have been laid out before the prophecy even being mentioned of Jesus coming. This is what is going to happen. Here's what God is going to do. Here's the victory. right? Here's the overcoming. And then verse 6, for to us a child is born. It's like there's complete 100% assurance in the Word of God that He is going to fulfill what it is He's saying and fulfill it so much so that He's already speaking of it as though it has already happened. For to us a child is born. And this doesn't seem to compute in the mind of humanity that here we have this one, this chosen one who's going to come and battle and fight for us and remove oppression and... He's a child. <laughs> he has to be born. He has to nurse. He has to grow. And so granted, we saw this immediate fulfillment in the time of Isaiah. That God would send a sign. That He would f- keep His promise. But Jesus is the greater fulfillment. The future fulfillment here. That God has kept His Word. That He has kept His promises since the time of Abraham. That this kingdom that He's going to establish, that this salvation that He brings, that this freedom that He brings is eternal. It's greater than anything ever before. In fact, He will be, as we see in Isaiah chapter 11, the shoot of Jesse that is coming up from the ground. If you get to Isaiah 11, the picture doesn't get any better. It gets more grim. It's this picture of a desolate land that has been overtaken even now by the Babylonians. Wiping it clean, cutting the trees down, the 
the stumps of the tree still smoldering from all the fire and destruction. And then there's this picture of hope that out of one of those stumps comes a shoot. And it's the shoot of Jesse. It's that same imagery, that same picture, that hope is rising, that peace is rising, that joy is rising even amidst all the trouble that Christ is coming. And so a child is born to us. A son is given. It says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. This picture First of all, is this son is the divine son. In the context of this passage, it's not a, just a human son, but it is a human son who is also 100% divine in God. And upon his shoulders will be the government. Not just talking about Israeli government, not talking about taking over the Roman government, but talking about full dominion, full power, full authority over all things. Everything in life, every form of government on the earth is in subjection to Him. He rules over it all. This baby, this child who comes down. And He comes, and His name, singular, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's not just one name. But who He is encompasses all of these things. So His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You have a pairing of really kind of the humanity and the divine in the pairing of these couplets, of these words together. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful being the ability to work supernatural signs. There's that wonder. There's that awe. Counsel being that of one who, is able, one who is able to give wise advice. But not only that, but receive it. And so what makes this wonderful counselor above the rest and above all is that this counselor doesn't have to consult kings. Doesn't have to consult prophets. Doesn't have to consult princes. Doesn't have to consult anyone. Because God is perfect wisdom. And so from Him springs forth the full wisdom of God in every way. Church, who are you turning to for advice, for wisdom, for counsel? Ahaz turned to Assyria for help. And that didn't pan out so well. Who are we turning to? We find ourselves in a rut, frustrated, and so we become strategic. We get the whiteboard out. We start figuring out a plan and a solution. Okay, maybe if I talk to this person and figure this out or get that angle, then it'll make this situation better. That's relying on own human strength and wisdom, which is folly. But are we turning to the Lord? Are we seeking Him? And He's wonderful. He has provided for us a sign. He has provided for us miracles. And we see that laced in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. The greatest sign of all is the resurrection. What more do we need? You can go to Him. You can receive counsel 
from him. And so what that means also is that those who are being taken to exile, those who are being who are just suffering the most, God is saying, come talk to me and let me pour into you my wisdom. And he is mighty God. Mighty referring to the one who has the military prowess to carry the day. The military prowess to carry the day. He's not a weak God. He's not an apathetic God. He's not a God who's scared of the fight. But He's the one who carries the day. He goes in with complete confidence because nobody, nothing can overtake Him. Not even sin. Not even death. And this is fascinating because this is ultimately attributed to Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. And if you were to flip into the New Testament to the book of Jude, you would see in there how Jude writes out that Jesus is the one who saved us from the hand of the Egyptians. He is mighty. He is the mighty warrior. He is the one who has taken us and delivered us out. He is the victor. And if He can do that, over and over again in the Old Testament, and not just sparing an entire nation, but even a remnant, then how much more so can He deliver us from the principalities of this world? Satan and his demons and sin and death. He is mighty God. Jesus is the great warrior who fought on our behalf just like God fought on behalf of Gideon. And this is to show us that Jesus alone is the victor. Do you believe that Jesus is mighty enough to defeat sin, to defeat death, to defeat Satan? It says in Revelation that He will put death to death. Right? He will cast Satan into the eternal flame. He will crush Satan under under our feet. But do you live that way? Do you live as though that Jesus is the victor? Or do you live in fear of what's happening in the world around you? That your job situation, government, whatever it is, seems more mighty and powerful than your God. And do you believe that Jesus has the ability to overcome darkness with His light. Do you believe that He has the ability to do that? He has come into the region of the Gentiles. Right? This is hope, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. The indictment against Israel and Judah was an indictment against Assyria and Gentiles, but also then the hope for the Jews is also the hope for the Gentiles as well. So Jesus comes in exposing the darkness of the Jews, but He also comes in exposing the darkness of the Gentiles. So what that means for us here now is that God's light through Jesus Christ is shining in us. Shining upon us. Exposing the dark deeds of our hearts. But also calling us to step into the light. To take whatever we're hiding, whatever we're afraid of, whatever we're fearful of, and to bring it into the exposing light of Christ because what He will do is then redeem it, and He will turn that darkness into light. Are you living in the light? 
This Jesus is everlasting Father. It's a little bit hard for us to swallow that one down because we're very Trinitarian. We're very clear on who God the Father is, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and we don't mix those things up. But this is not a calling Jesus God the Father. But it's speaking of the character of this Son, of this child. That He will be like a father, a caregiver to His people. Jesus often refers to His disciples and people around Him as children, as sons, as daughters. You can look at Matthew 9, verse 2. And so He has this fatherly figure. And this fatherly figure is everlasting. Jesus is like a caring Father to us all. So how has Jesus been caring to you? How how has He been caring for you? How has He been like a Father to you? And look, we know that Jesus is not the Father. Let's be clear of that. But we also know that Jesus is the spitting image of His Father. Not doing any works outside of what the Father already does. So anytime we see Jesus, we also see the Father because they abide in one another and we abide in Christ. And so that means through Christ, we are then given the fatherly, we are recipients of the fatherly love and mercy, kindness, forgiveness that is given to from the heavens. Have you been seeing that Jesus has been pouring upon you the godly, loving, good, merciful affections of the Father in heaven? Or do you feel like Jesus is just condemning you? No matter where you go, no matter what you do, you feel like you're just constantly messing up, you're doing the wrong thing. But a good father doesn't just sit there and harp on a child's sin and go, you're just pathetic, you're awful, I wish I never had you. But instead, a good father says, yes, you've sinned. You need to be disciplined. But come with me and let me show you how I forgive you, how I love you, and how you can walk anew, how you can walk differently, how you can walk in the light of my son. And this Jesus is Prince of Peace. Love this. He is the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This imagery of Prince, this governing official, And in this case, He's the Prince who is characterized by peace. This is what describes Jesus as Prince. And it is this, peace. And as I mentioned earlier, peace has the idea of tranquility, safety, wholeness, prosperity, health. And all of those things God brings to us. Like There's a holistic nature to this. We are prosperous because we have the riches of the heavens. We have everything we need. Right? He he gives health to our mortal bodies when we are walking in obedience to him. It doesn't mean we don't see death or sickness, but there is legitimate health that comes and health that comes to our minds, to our souls. 
There is a real safety here. And don't understand, misunderstand, I'm not talking about safety from enemies here on earth, but safety from your ferociously holy God who would consume you. There is true safety there because now we are in Christ and we can enter into that holy place with Him. And because of that, it does bring an element of tranquility. That in the midst of walking in exile, as exiles, we can have a genuine peace about us. Because peace is on the rise. And here's what it does, the peace of Christ. It brings us back into right relationship with God, our Father. This peace brings Jews and Gentiles together. Don't forget what we see in Ephesians, where you have the hostility between Jew and Gentile is broken down in Christ. He destroys that wall of hostility, and instead, he creates what? One new man. That's the idea of shalom. That's the idea of peace, a wholeness, a oneness. And this peace also leads us to living out a life unlike the world, a life of peace in a fallen world. As much as it is possible, live at peace with everyone. And so Jesus comes to make all things whole again. Jesus brings peace into your life. Is peace winning the day in your life right now? Is peace winning the day in your parenting, in your marriage, in your workplace? Is it winning the day? How do you live with those around you? How do you address things or handle conflict? How do you view your relationships to those in the world around you? And begin asking those questions. You begin to really see if you're living in a state of peace or maybe chaos or fear or anxiety. Can the peace of Christ be seen in your life? Or can others only see the doom and gloom that comes from your mouth, that comes from your social media status. And listen, part of taking care in how we build that 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 kind of vision for the next 12 months, that our building up the church is guided by the peace that Jesus brings. That's how we build up, is in the peace of Christ. Peace is, I already mentioned, wholeness. And if that's true, then we must see that there is true gospel peace among our body. And we do that by building one another up and working to make sure that we don't miss any bricks in the wall. Right? A wall is not whole if you have missing bricks. And sometimes we just look over certain bricks, certain people. We don't want to build them up. We don't want to set them on the wall with us. We don't want to be joined together in unity with them. But understand, that is the bond of peace. That we are built together. And so that requires that we have to confess our sin. That we have to get over ourselves. That we have to humble ourselves before one another. Because this building up isn't about me and you. It's about Christ. It's about His glory. It's about His kingdom. It's about His church. A church 
that He laid His life down for. And so church, we will not be living in peace if we don't actively strive and work to know one another, to build each other up in Christ, and to press into the Gospel together. We cannot just be a bunch of individuals. We must be family. And so we have to be a church that moves towards one another and not away from one another. And we are to be the bastions of peace to the world as well. As I mentioned, as much as it depends upon us, we are to be at peace with everyone. We're not to be the ones who are causing strife and contention, division and hostility. We are to be a people guided by the peace of Christ. And granted, understand this, the world, when it comes against the peace of Christ, it's like it convulses, right? It becomes hostile. It becomes angry. It becomes very reactionary. You and I are not responsible for that sort of visceral reaction. But we need to respond in the peace of Christ so that people understand that the light covers us. That we don't live in deep darkness, but we leave, we live in exposed light, in the exposed light of Christ. And so when the world comes at us with their version of peace, and their version of peace is saying, you need to conform this way, you need to denounce Christ, you need to do your church this way, or you need, your kids need to understand um, equality uh, in the school systems this way. Like when those things that really kind of get under our skin come at us and the world says, this is our form of peace, we don't respond like the world, becoming hostile and angry and sinful anger and resentment. We respond in the peace of Christ. And that peace of Christ is strong enough to resist the things of the world. Don't misunderstand. It's not an apathetic peace. It's a strong peace. But when we respond to the things of the world, there is no anxiety about it. There's no worry about it. Oh, they want to take my house? Okay. Take my job? All right. They want to take my life? To die is gain. And that is the very offensive and paradoxical peace of Christ. And so this Prince of Peace who rules. Verse 7, Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is one of those passages that I like to think that the Jews in the time of Jesus are mistranslating or misinterpreting and misunderstanding that they're expecting this political Messiah to come to the scene, to take the government on His shoulders, to get us back into the land, to get that temple rebuilt, to get a king in place, right? And you would get it. But that's not the picture of what Jesus is doing. Jesus comes back to establish His eternal kingdom from His eternal throne. Do you understand that peace and the kingdom of Jesus are on the rise? you understand that? Even in this climate that we live in, the peace of Jesus and the kingdom of God are on the rise. And we're not to be searching for a political Messiah either. We can't fall into that trap. 
It's not what Jesus has come to do. Jesus is not sitting on His throne going, man, I hope America gets back to its roots. That'd be like Israel looking back at, hey, take us back to the good old days. That's not where we're going. Going back is not a rise in peace. is not a rise in the kingdom. It's going back to a state of continued hopelessness. What we once were is not eternity. It's not the gospel. It's not the kingdom of God. Granted, there are good things there, but we have to understand there was even better things in Israel's history before they were taken into captivity. They were literally in the land promised to them by Abraham. But God is saying, this is not it. Hope, peace is rising. There's a better place that we are going to. And so we have to be aware that God is allowing these cruddy times and things to happen. And even amidst them, He has the power, the Spirit of God gives you the power to believe that joy is on the rise, that peace is on the rise, that the kingdom of God is on the rise. And so my question then is, are you giving more attention to the darkness that surrounds us or to the light? What are you talking about more? What is the main thing that is a topic of discussion by you? What are you reading the most? What are you writing about the most? When you're at the water cooler at work, what is the thing you're constantly talking about? And it seems to always be wrapped up in the darkness of things that are going on around us. We're giving so much attention to darkness that light seems like a faded um, light in the distance. Just a little speck. But really what we need to be doing is living in the midday sun, completely enveloped in light, where darkness doesn't even seem to be on the horizon. It doesn't mean we're ignorant or dumb to the things that are going on around us. But we need to be, be making much of Christ. Making much of His light. Understand that peace is not dependent upon our status in a country. But it's dependent upon Christ and Him sitting on the throne and that He will come back for us. And so that matters because we want the world around us to change. We want laws to change. We want certain morality to set in in this country. And, we, and the, the one way that we want to do it is we're going to change the laws... Right? We're going to protest. Those things aren't wrong or bad. But that's the way we're trying to do it. But Christ is telling us, the Word is telling us to be the light. The world needs to see that what we have to offer is actually something worth having. That it's something other than this world can supply or give. The world, the reason in Acts chapter 2 that the surrounding community was in awe of what was happening in the church is because they saw the power of God resting upon the church. They saw the church completely enveloped in the light of Christ, overtaken by Him, and they were just awestruck at it. Too often we look just like the world, whining and complaining and fussing about the darkness. The world does that. But we need to give the world what the world can't do on its own. That is the light of Christ. 
Showing them that our King sits enthroned and on His shoulders sits the government. And it is increasing. His kingdom is increasing. His peace is increasing. The light is increasing. Do all that you want, world. But understand, you cannot overcome this light. That's the sort of posture. That's the sort of language. That's the sort of humility we need to take into this dying world. That's the good news our world needs to hear most. And understand, because I get this, there are injustices that are taking place. And it just gets us to the core. Frustrates the ever-living daylights out of us. But God promises us, right? As He is promising people who are being taken into captivity, I won't let injustices just go by unpunished. I am the God of justice. The God of righteousness. I am going to make sure that is perfectly established. And here's the good news for you and me. That our perfect justice, our perfect righteousness has been perfectly completed through Christ. The wrath of God meant for us was poured out on Him. And understand this, the world and the darkness that is around us that frustrates us on a daily, they will have to stand before God. If they don't repent, they are going to have to pay their own penalty for sin. But if they would turn to Christ, Christ would pay it for them. So we have reason to be hopeful and to rejoice and to be at peace. And to further remove the weight of us thinking that we have to somehow maybe usher in this peace, Isaiah reminds us in the last sentence, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You're not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Our president's not going to do it. A council of nations is not going to do it. The Lord of hosts will do this. Christmas is a time we are reminded that the zeal of the Lord has led Him to sending us a baby. And that baby would grow learn, develop, and one day that baby would die. And this death he would die would not be the end of life of just a great man who lived, but just a marker of increasing joy and peace that has come and continues to come. Three days after his death, the baby boy turned man would rise from the grave and he would ascend back to the Father and he would pour out his Holy Spirit And then from His throne He would sit, He would make enemies His footstool, and for generations He would increase His kingdom, His glory, moving His people from darkness to marvelous light, increasing the peace and joy of their hearts as each day passed is one day closer to the eternal glory and exaltation. And this is all the Lord's doing. So church, today is a day we can rest in the rising peace given to us by Christ and start shedding off the darkness we continue to live in every day by looking back at the beautiful giving of Jesus as a babe and then looking forward to the beautiful day when that same Jesus will come again to establish 
his peace forever.